Colectivo Raíces presenta su programa Espejos de Aztlán Información, arte, cultura Bienvenidos Bienvenidos a tu programa Espejos de Aztlán I am your host for tonight's show, Rafael Martinez. Joining me in sound engineering is Froilán Orozco, and we also have Moisés Santos, who helped us with this interview in hosting the show. We are here joined by Dr. Tomás Sáenz, Presidente and President of MALDEF, and we are happy to have him. He's been on our show previously before, but he's always a welcomed guest. And so... Dr. Sainz, would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? I'm Thomas Sainz, President and General Counsel of MALDEF, which is the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. We are a now 51-year-old national civil rights organization, and our mission is to promote the civil rights of all Latinos living in the United States. That's a great introduction, and obviously you've been involved with MALDEF for a very long time and have been doing a lot of outstanding work. So what brings you to our city of Albuquerque? So we are culminating a, a series of commemorations of our 50th anniversary, 50 years, half a century of doing the important work. And we wanted to hold an event here in New Mexico because the state has been so important to our history. Some of our founders were from New Mexico, and we've had a strong connection to the state, including some important litigation, including our currently ongoing case, Martinez uh, versus the state, which involves the education system here in New Mexico. That was actually one of the very first cases that I actually heard of when I first moved to Albuquerque seven years ago. And I remember going to a meeting and being completely disoriented as I'm still learning about New Mexico and, you know, basically learning about what's going on in New Mexico. And it was good to see a familiar face with Maldef in the city here as well. So uh, beyond um, some of this great work that you're doing here in New Mexico, is there any other um, ongoing work that you would like to highlight and talk about? Well, we're doing a lot of work these days about Census 2020, recognizing how important it is to the Latino community throughout our history. Uh, every decennial census has been an important marker of progress because our growth as a community has translated after the census through the redistricting process into greater and greater political power. But we face some greater challenges with Census 2020 than we ever have before, largely because of the census being implemented by what is the most anti-Latino or Latinophobic presidential administration in our entire history as a country. And with the census that relates to, for example, their attempt to add at the last minute a citizenship question to census 2020, which was only being done to trigger a massive undercount, a massive lack of participation in the Latino community. Now, fortunately, as you know, we had an improbable victory, not expected, out of the Supreme Court where Chief Justice Roberts joined the four moderates on the court to indicate that the administration could not move forward with that citizenship question based on the public rationale offered by the Commerce Secretary someone whom I now refer to as Lion Wilbur Ross because he lied to the public and the Congress about why the question was being added, and the Supreme Court said you can't do that. However, the threat is not over, so we've now, a few weeks ago, filed a lawsuit challenging the executive order that Donald Trump issued at the same time that he was indicating they would give up on trying to add the citizenship question But with that executive order, he directed the Bureau, the Census Bureau, to collect administrative records 
from federal and state sources to try to create a database of citizenship in the country. And we think that's dangerous and violates a number of laws, starting with the fact that the same racial discriminatory intent that was behind the citizenship question is also behind this effort. So we have joined, we have started that lawsuit, and we are pursuing important work in other parts of the country, including particularly Alabama, where the state is trying to have the entire undocumented population subtracted from the census count, arguing that somehow undocumented immigrants, even those who have lived here for years and years and years, are somehow not persons residing in the United States under our Constitution. Now, we know we'll win that case. But we intervened because we didn't trust the Trump administration, which was the nominal defendant, to put up a vigorous defense. And now we are concerned that the administration may try, even if we win against Alabama, to voluntarily, on its own, try to back out, subtract the undocumented population. So more recently, within the last 10 days, we filed a cross-claim, a new lawsuit in that lawsuit against the federal government. It's called a cross-claim because they're our defendant. They're a defendant, as are we. But we are suing them so that not only will the judge decide against Alabama that the Constitution doesn't require discounting entirely the undocumented population, but will also tell the federal government the Constitution prohibits you from refusing to include the undocumented population in the count. Thank you for that elaborate response and such an important case that's going on at the federal level. And as you mentioned, attacking or counterattacking some of the threats that have been going on for our undocumented and Latino populations here in the United States. Speaking of undocumented populations, you've been on some pretty high profile cases all the way back in Prop 186 in California, but also more recently with, again, with Maldives, you've been at the forefront of leading efforts with the DACA issue right now. Is that a case that you would like to talk to? us today about? So, of course, the DACA was an initiative from the Obama administration that the Trump administration has indicated it wants to end. Fortunately, courts have intervened. Now the Supreme Court will hear the case in an argument on November 12th and then make a decision before the end of June in 2020 about whether the Trump administration has the ability to end the DACA initiative. The bottom line is we need congressional action uh, together with the White House to protect this important group of immigrants who have made enduring contributions to our economy, to our development as a country, and should be allowed to continue to do that. Uh, We think DACA is the first step toward a broader immigration reform that would recognize the contributions of all undocumented immigrants in our workforce and in raising families and building communities and supporting neighborhoods that are so important, those efforts that are so important to our ability to thrive uh, as a country. Uh, You're right. Uh, This is an issue tied to what has been going on for far too long in this country. Uh, This November is actually the 25th anniversary of the enactment of Proposition 187 that you mentioned in California, and that was at the time the most anti-immigrant state law enacted in memory. Now, since then, We've had some others, SB 1070 in Arizona, and more recently SB 4 in Texas, uh, really a wave of these anti-immigrant laws. But it began this latest wave, I would say, 25 years ago in California. But as you know, California has changed as a result 
of the threat of Proposition 187, we saw a surge in naturalizations, a surge in voter registration, a surge in civic participation by the Latino and allied communities that has permanently changed the politics of California. And I think that's a harbinger of what's going to happen nationwide in the current wave of really vitriolic anti-immigrant rhetoric coming from the White House and others in this administration, but playing out throughout the country. It is going to be a catalyst for Latino tenacity and resilience to come forward and prevail. And we are going to change the politics of this country. I believe that. Definitely. And, you know, kind of speaking about this current administration and some of the things that it has brought forward from the legal end of it, has there been any significant changes or things that maybe didn't happen under previous administrations that you see notable as mentioning? And what is maybe some of those other hopes that you would like to give to the Latino community nationwide as we're hoping, you know, moving forward past this administration? So hope is the right word, because I think the most dangerous and pervasive change made by this administration is consciously attempting to create an atmosphere of confusion and fear in the immigrant community, including all uh, immigrants from the most recent entries to those who have been here for decades. The constant rhetoric that demonizes the immigrant community, that attempts to suggest that somehow it's appropriate to treat citizens as substantially different with substantially more rights than those who are not yet citizens, which is not actually the tradition in this country. But creating that pervasive chaos and fear is really the most pernicious element of this administration's accomplishments, quote unquote, if you will. And that's dangerous. And it has long, long-term consequences. Coupled with that, of course, are the very dangerous changes in practices, far more separations of families at the border, caging of children, including very, very young children, the attempts to make it impossible for immigrant families to obtain support that they need by redefining public charge under our immigration laws, uh, by attempting to prevent folks from accessing what they need, and frankly, by increasing changes in our immigration policies and practices that are inhumane, including most recently, of course, attempting to change our whole asylum policy in a manner that would disproportionately, of course, affect Latino immigrants coming from Central America. And there's no escaping that so much of this it's not coincidental that its greatest effect is on the Latino community. It is part of an anti-Latino, Latino-phobic uh, campaign by this administration. Maybe on a, a lighter side or switching to a lighter side as well. After this Espejos Aslan show, we do have a music show. And recently, Maldev honored and put out a statement honoring the late Jose Jose, who just recently passed. May he rest in peace. But thinking about icons like Jose Jose and many other current icons in, in our Latino community, how is maybe Maldef using culture, identity, and music as a form of reaching out to the Latino community, even when we're facing such you know, important cases like the ones you mentioned? It's absolutely clear that we need more folks like Jose, who was such an important symbol and icon, as, as you correctly say, for the Latino and broader immigrant communities, uh, and someone who was unafraid of speaking out and demonstrating public support for the struggles faced by working class immigrants and working class Latinos across the country. We need more of that. Uh, and certainly Maldef sees the continuum of effort 
the continuum of courage that's necessary to support our community. It's no mistake that the long-shot campaign of a candidate who built his campaign around targeting Latinos middle of 2015, slandered the entire Mexican immigrant community when he announced his candidacy, and a year later in June of 2016 accused a federal judge of bias simply because the judge is Mexican-American. So this long-shot candidate who successfully built a campaign around demonizing the Latino community was able to do that because of the longstanding pattern of in a lack of inclusion lack of equitable representation in all walks of life, but perhaps most importantly, in media and entertainment, where Latinos are the most underrepresented group, bar none. When you compare our population percentage to how we are represented in numbers on screen, uh, in both film and television and online, the biggest gap the biggest level of underrepresentation affects the Latino community. And that leaves a vacuum. And that vacuum then gets filled. And in this case, it got filled by Donald Trump, who could convince people who don't have their own knowledge and experience of the Latino community because we are so underrepresented, could convince people of the lies that he was purveying. Uh, so we've got to address that ongoing issue of exclusion significant underrepresentation, including in the cultural sectors of leadership in this country. So MALDEF, together with others, are really putting more efforts into pressuring those who are in decision-making capacity to put out better representation in numbers and in storylines of the Latino community, because if they fail to address that issue, then these folks are complicit and what we're facing with the Trump administration. Bienvenidos a tu programa Espejos de Aslan. For tonight's show, we have the honor of hosting President of Maldef, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Dr. Thomas Sainz, who was here in Albuquerque for this week and has given us some incredible insights into some important cases going on. You were talking just a little while ago about like the some of the state laws that have been uh, passed or, or attempted to be passed that, that affect the community. Could you speak a little bit about sort of the difference between the state and federal laws and how they've been sort of applied and how they affect the community, the undocumented community in general, but Latino community, as you said, sometimes in sp specifically? And if there's a difference in strategies, because I think sometimes folks, we're not so aware of the state laws, you know, and, and the federal laws sort of, seem in any way in, in, in the general media or in the general community sort of seem to affect more. So before we had this hostile presidential administration, generally speaking in the last several years, the greatest danger to the immigrant community came from those state laws and local restrictions, some of them very, very inhumane. But we were able in many cases to challenge those laws successfully because under our constitution it is a federal responsibility alone to regulate immigration. And no matter how much an individual state, whether that was Arizona and SB 1070 or Texas with SB 4 or an individual locality, may dislike what the federal government is doing or not doing, they don't have the right to enact their own regulations of, of immigrants and the, the kinds of experiences that immigrants have. 
So that was very powerful use of the court system to get rid or at least limit many of those anti-immigrant laws. It's a different challenge and a bigger challenge in many ways when you have a federal government whose responsibility it is under the Constitution to regulate immigration that is so hostile to the immigrant community like this administration. There, uh, really, the challenges relate to federal laws passed, passed by Congress. So it's then a question of what is Congress directed occur versus what is within the president's discretion to do. And in that regard, this administration has gone way overboard and I think has been successfully challenged and will be successfully challenged more and more as it attempts to do things that are clearly, clearly not sanctioned by congressional action. So at the federal government level, as you know, we have a separation of powers. And the president, despite what this current president seems to believe or articulate, doesn't, is not all powerful. He can only work within the laws passed by Congress. And I think more and more we'll see successful challenges to what uh, particularly some of the more recent anti-immigrant steps being taken by this administration. So it is a different battle. They're legal battles, but the law is not the only and cannot be the only way of responding to these anti-immigrant laws. We need organizing. We need civic engagement. We need voter registration. We need all of these campaigns going together uh, against, in this case, we've got both a hostile federal government and still some states and localities that are passing their own anti-immigrant laws. As far as giving us a heads up or a preview, are there anything that maybe we haven't heard in, in the public yet or in terms of like something that you feel that is important in terms of case legal cases pre that have precedents uh, federally or at the state level that maybe haven't met headways that you would like to you know, point out to um, a general audience? So I, I think it's important for us to know, as I know many in the Latino community do know, that we have to attend not only to the depredations of rights by this administration toward immigrants and toward the Latino community, but it's happening in other arenas as well. The Latino community seems to be his number one target, but he has hostility towards so many communities and is trying to change the law and turn back legal protections for so many communities and those changes may not fall under a traditional summation of what are Latino issues and concerns, but they have impacts in our community. So right now, in this term, the Supreme Court is going to consider what kinds of protections against employment discrimination, for example, exist for the LGBTQ community. And in the Latino community, I know many are concerned, and we all should be concerned about what's going on there. Because when you're the largest minority group in the country, it also means that Latinos and Latinas are the largest minority group within the LGBTQ population as well. So we've got to be paying attention to all of these issues, the threats to you know, reproductive health choice, and reproductive health services are a danger to our community. As the Latino community grows and becomes more important, all of these legal issues are Latino issues. And I know so many people in the Latino community appreciate that, but we've got to articulate that and recognize all of these issues, even though they may come under the rubric of a, another community. There are issues as well, and we've got to be protecting against all of these attempts to retrogress when it comes to civil rights. Completely agree. And so thinking about what organizations like MALDEF are doing that maybe 
we didn't have to do as much in terms of collaboration efforts, of intersectional um, efforts to reach out to other community members and to other uh, legal groups that maybe you've seen um, have really risen to the challenge. So Maldiv has always been an organization that believes in collaboration, but that collaboration, as you suggested, has deepened because it has to. When you face a hostile administration like this one, it brings people together who recognize the common issues and concerns uh, when you see the kinds of wholesale change and retrogression that we're seeing under the Trump administration. But we have partnered with and look forward to partnering more and more with groups serving different communities, but overlapping communities in many respects, and even those that, that don't overlap much, but where our issues are of similar concern. For example, on the census cases that I described earlier, Maldiv has partnered with Asian Americans Advancing Justice, recognizing that while the primary target may be Latino immigrants, Asian American immigrants are also swept in to so many of these Trump anti-immigrant efforts. But we have also worked with LGBTQ organizations. We have a, an ongoing case that should have been resolved earlier in the federal courts, but we didn't prevail there, so now we're in state court, but challenging an Indiana law that is the most anti-immigrant law I've ever seen um, without any justification. Now, it only applies in a limited area, but it is a law that exists nowhere else in, else in the country. But in Indiana, you must be a United States citizen in order to change your name legally. Uh, and not even a lawful permanent resident is able in Indiana under their current law to change your name legally. And our client, and we are working together with the Transgender Law Center, our client is a transgender immigrant from Mexico who needs to change his name in order to remove uh, the name he was born with, which is a female name, uh, because... He appears to be male. He identifies as male and going about his life when he has to produce an ID that has a woman's name on it. You can imagine with cops uh, in emergency rooms, even in restaurants and nightclubs, you can imagine the problems that are created. But he can't change his name because he's a lawful permanent resident, not yet a U.S. citizen. But that anti-immigrant law, we're, we're proud to be challenging with the Transgender Law Center. But these are just a couple of examples of the kinds of collaboration that are going on that are so important in taking on the challenges we face. So taking it back uh, to New Mexico, kind of where we started the interview with, uh, Ferlan had a, a good question that he wanted to ask you about that case. Maybe if you could expand a little further. Yeah, uh, so given the changes that are happening in the state of New Mexico with the education case that you took on, how is that going to be enacted here locally in the state? And also, how are the impacts going to be felt across the nation? So it's a great question. We're sort of at the beginning of the remedial phase of that lawsuit. So after much work, a long trial, we got a great decision in our favor, recognizing that the state needed to do more. And now the state legislature has acted but we need to go into a phase of evaluating what they've done, how it's being implemented, and how its success will be monitored, and how there will be intervention. If the monitoring shows that the state is not making progress on ensuring an adequate and equitable education for every student in the state. So the goal in this remedial phase, which, by the way, is complicated by the fact that, unfortunately, the judge who issued the ruling after trial in our favor passed away. 
So we have a new judge in a very complex area, and we've got to work with that new judge on this remedial phase to evaluate what the state has done. But the hope is that we can get in place some real improvements that will start to address the education gaps faced not only by the Latino community, but by the Native American community, by those special education students, um, by English learners uh, of all races, so that we can try to address successfully reducing some of those important gaps. And this case is one of many across the country where state constitutional law has been used to try to improve education systems. So it will have an effect in other states. Unfortunately, because it's under New Mexico state law, it won't have a direct effect. And that's all a result of a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in the early 1970s that education is not a fundamental right under our U.S. Constitution. It was a bad decision at the time, still a bad decision today, but with the current Supreme Court, not a great prospect of changing that conclusion anytime soon. So we are confined to acting in state courts under state law when it comes to these issues, these critical issues of education equity. Are there sort of social institutions or spaces that you see immigrants are being targeted most? Like, um, I know education is one important one that folks in the community will sometimes um, be, again, more aware of, but is there some other ones that maybe folks are not so aware of that that people maybe should be paying attention to? So I I think it's really important that folks understand that anti-immigrant bullying, anti-immigrant discrimination is not acceptable when it's being uh, accomplished, done by private parties. And that's what we've seen. And I know you all have heard these stories as I have of uh, folks who appear to be immigrants who are being yelled at and berated by other customers in stores or restaurants or even on the street, you name it. Or certainly what we're seeing is discrimination in employment, that it seems to be based on someone being an immigrant. But if you're a work-authorized immigrant, you have every right to work and to be considered for any employment for which you're qualified. So I think that there's a misperception in the public, both by perpetrators and sometimes by the victims, that it's okay for private parties, that somehow private parties have a right to engage in anti-immigrant discrimination. The fact is they don't. And we have made it an important part of our mission in recent years to combat that. So we've got a number of cases challenging major employers that have discriminated against work-authorized DACA recipients. And we are looking at challenging cases of consumer discrimination. We have one case now against Wells Fargo Bank because of that kind of discrimination. And we're looking for more cases to make examples and set precedents because that's a major problem that somehow folks believe they have a right to engage in that kind of discrimination if they're a private party and they don't under our laws. So thinking about celebrating 50 years of MALDEF, one of the things that's been coming up with some of the longer standing organizations in recent times has been how are the organizations that have been around for a long time attracting youth and making sure that these organizations stay relevant, but also inclusive space for some of the new identities, which you kind of already briefly talked about, but also just how uh, has MALDEF changed over the time and maybe adapted to some of the new trends that we see going on? 
Well, I think we have adapted. I, I hope we've adapted. We've continued to recognize the importance of collaboration, as we've discussed, across communities. We've continued to recognize that our legal work is not the solution. It has to be accomplished in combination with others with different approaches to social change. I'm very proud that we are uh, one of the major organizations supporting the development of immigrant youth-led uh, community organizations. We serve as project sponsor for a number of immigrant youth-led organizations and have for many years. And that's about recognizing that we do have to uh, build up youth involvement in all of the work to succeed. And I think that we're looking always for more ways to do that. Uh, we certainly are trying to adapt to the new ways that folks communicate as Everybody in media, as you all have to adapt, we are attempting to to do the same. Um, I think that it's a matter of changing focus, but I'm proud that Maldif has always been an organization that I think is ahead of the curve on a lot of the developments. I'm always proud of pointing out that we are now 51 years old, but that for a majority of those years, and I don't think there's another civil rights organization that could say this, but for a majority of those years, uh, in in fact, for some, what is it, 29 of our 51 years, uh, we were led by an executive who was a woman. I don't think there's any other organization that could say that. Um, but that, to me, epitomizes our, I hope, being ahead of the curve, but adapting always to meet the changing, evolving needs of the community and the area that we work. For sure, and because we want to be you know, cognizant of your time and your valuable time, thanks for being here again. Um, any final words that maybe you want to include that we didn't touch up on? And then just as a add to that, um, any final words specifically for our New Mexico audience? So I just want to emphasize the importance of Census 2020. I've talked a bit about the legal challenges, but now we've got to get down to the work of getting everybody counted. And what we've seen in our community in particular is our undercount doesn't come always from households refusing or not responding. It comes from households who respond, but for whatever reason leave some of the members of the household out of the response. So in the 2010 census, we saw a lot of zero to four-year-olds, the youngest members of the household, being left out of the household listing. So we've really got to work to ensure that everyone in New Mexico, from the urban areas to the rural areas, everyone is counted, every household submits a response, and the households, when they respond, include every member from the youngest to the oldest in the listing. Because it's so important that we be counted for political representation, uh, and for the distribution of federal funding, and because so many private decisions are also deeply influenced by what happens in the census. And we've got some challenges. This is the first digital census in our history. We've got to get over some folks' trepidations about responding online uh, to the census. And we've got to address, obviously, the concerns that go beyond the citizenship question, now not on the questionnaire, but to a distrust of the Trump administration. And we're taking steps and we'll be taking more steps to ensure that people understand their data is safe. Federal law is ironclad, that it cannot be misused, cannot be released for any purpose beyond census tabulations for 72 years. So it's important and it's safe and we've got to get everybody counted in this state to ensure that New Mexico has a representation and the funding that it needs. Dr. Thomas Science here on Espejos. 
Muchas gracias from gracias. all of us. Gracias. Thank you.